Motivational speaker Jim Rohn famously said that we are the average of the five people with whom we spend the most time. And that's a pretty cool statement because if it's true, it means we are ultimately empowered to decide who we're going to be and how good we're going to be or how smart or how strong or how uh, morally upright by choosing the people with whom we spend time the people that we keep in our circle, that we allow the most information about who we are and with whom we share our intimate thoughts and desires, uh, and they share in return back with us. That's pretty cool. It's very empowering. My guest today on the show is definitely one of my top five, and here's how you know. Here's how I know. Because the simple way, if you look at my speed dial, It's a person who is in the top three on my speed dial. Additionally, I don't think over the last 20 years with this person, the conversation has ever ended. It's always been a continuation of a long-running conversation with many. uh, If you ever went to a comedy show, how you know a comedian will tell a part of a story, and then they'll go on to tell other parts. And then one part from a previous part of the story will come back and be a recurring theme uh, throughout the story. There's many of those. The conversation runs for decades now uh, to the point where um, I often feel like this person is one of my business partners because they know the ins and outs of my business. As well, I am their business partner because I know very much the ins and outs of their business. And I'd like to say that um, that's a super important thing to have someone with whom you don't have to pull punches who uh, has your best interest in mind and your best business interest in mind as well, uh, with whom you can share your even off-color remarks. And, you know, hey, maybe I should do this, and, and they'll call you on it. Or, you know, maybe I can do that. What are your thoughts on this? And, and not worry about judgment. The good thing about that is, uh, aside from the obvious benefits, is when it comes to doing a podcast, per se, something like this, uh, This particular friend of mine has probably done five of the top 10 podcasts in the last month. Yet I have no worries when he called me and said, let's do your show. I had no apprehension. I had no hesitation. My only stipulation was I'll only do it if you agree to keep it 100. I don't want you coming in. Doing the, you know, the polished sales lines. I'm going to do everything I can to keep you from going on autopilot for what the things that you've said on the other 10 podcasts. And I'm going to tell the truth and I want you to tell the truth. And if you're cool with that, then let's just get on the phone. I mean, we don't even have to, aside from press the record button, we don't have to really, really uh, worry about what's coming next. Everything that comes next is going to be a result of what we've been talking about for the last 20 years. And we're going to relate it to your current project, which is your first Publisher House published book. It's his second book. The first one was self-published. This one, you know, he got a, a nice advance to do by a, a major publishing house. As a matter of fact, there was a bidding a bidding process for which publisher was going to get his book as a result of his hard work, consistency, and innovation in his own space. So today, this morning, I got on. Uh, I got on the phone with my good friend Light Watkins meditation teacher, uh, and recent second-time author. 
The conversation we had is going to span from his early life through his book. Uh, but I think we keep it pretty entertaining. And I think you're going to learn a lot about meditation, the value of it. You're going to learn a lot about the person himself. There's a lot of laughter um, just from shared stories. Um, you know, the Super Fantastic Show, I like to talk about parenting. I like to talk about relationships. So that's all in there. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. Take a look and make sure to pick up the copy of the book, Bliss More by Light Pockets. Keep it 100. Answer my question. Who's Forrest Watkins? Oh, we started? Yeah. Forrest Watkins <laughs> is the name on a fake ID that I had when I was in college. When oh, I first got to college. Tell that story. You. Tell that story. You, you get off the plane. So I was, <laughs> you got to take it back. I, so over the, the summer before college, I had a job at a bank that my dad set up. And um, they had this graphics program called Harvard Graphics. It was the first time I'd ever played with a computer graphics program. Old school. And, of course, you know, as an as an 18-year-old, I'm thinking, well, what's, what can I do with, with this skill set? And I'm about to go off to college. You know, I have this entrepreneurial mindset. Mm-hmm. I've had that my whole life. And there was an attempt at one point when I was um, – when I was uh, 17 to try to make a fake ID and I got busted and it was very embarrassing. I was on a date with a girlfriend of mine. I gave the waitress my fake ID when I ordered a daiquiri. And uh, (laughs) she said, she said, I can't give this back to you. And I'd look at my date and I said, I think we should leave. (laughs) I think we should stay here for dinner. (laughs) Meanwhile, I was like, what is she going to do? She's going to call the cop. It's like, she just didn't give it back to me. So the waitress laminated it and everything. Yeah, it was it was laminated. It was in my wallet. You know, you have the wallets with the little uh, clear yeah. window joint. Right. So I showed her my ID through the wallet. She said, "Can I, I need to actually hold it?" And I gave it to her, and she looked at it, and then she really she she looked at it, and then she was, <laughs> and then she like zoomed in, like what the, <laughs> and she said, "I'll be right back." Mm. And then I was like, you know, as a seventeen year old, you you don't know what's what's about to happen, so. I started panicking. I, I took, told my date, I said, I think we should, I think we may have to go. And then she came back and said, I can't give you the ID back. I'm sorry. Right. Which is very awkward. So anyway, um, I, I had been honing and refining my fake ID skills. I didn't, it didn't <laughs> deter me. Just, it just taught me I needed to do a better job the next time. <laughs> and uh, my dad was taking me to college. So, he and I were going to college. I had a I had a Manila folder with all my fake ID stuff, like all the like, because I was gonna I was not only gonna do it for myself, I was gonna mass produce this. That's what <laughs> my gonna plan. Be, it's gonna be I'm gonna make money in college. Yeah, I'm gonna make <laughs> oh yeah, I'm gonna make money in college. I'm gonna mass produce fake IDs, and uh, so I had all the different components. They were all gonna be these Alabama driver's licenses. Right. All I needed was a, a photograph, uh, like a. a Passport photo or something like that, and then we could go somewhere and find it, uh, get it laminated. Because you're the guy before they had 
barcodes. This and before stuff like barcodes, that. right? You're the guy who, in all the movies, that the criminal goes to to get the passport to get out of the country before they pull the heist. That's right. <laughs> I'm that guy. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So um, <clears throat> when I got to the college, first of all, I screwed up the dates. Right. Mm-hmm. So. I told my my dad had done any research. He was just going on what I told him. So I said, okay, check in is on. Let's say it's on Monday. Right. Right. So we showed up in D.C. on Sunday. He was going to drop me off at my dorm room on Monday, and then he was going to go off to some business trip. Mm-hmm. Right. We came coming up from Alabama. We show up Monday morning, first thing, bright and early at Drew Hall. Nobody's there. So then right off the bat, I'm thinking, all right, I didn't double check the date. I didn't triple check the date. Right. I hope I got the date right. There are chains on the doors. <laughs> so then so then we're like going around. My dad is pissed and uh, because, you know, I didn't double check the date. Right. And we're trying to see if there's any way we can get in because he's got to go out of town the next day. So there's no way we can get in, of course. He's got to cancel his trips. Now he's really pissed. I remember he said to me, he said, I wish I could just knock your head through that glass window. We're sitting in a car. <laughs> he said, I feel like just knocking you through that window right now. <laughs> and I, as an adult, though, I totally get it. Mm-hmm. You know, As a kid, I was like, well, I think that's a little harsh. But yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was a little embarrassed. So anyway, so he was already pissed off. Okay. My dad's an attorney. Right. Right. So he's always, he's all his whole life is by the book, you know, don't cut any corners. You can always increase the lag time, but eventually you're going to get caught. That was his whole message to us growing up. Mm-hmm. So the next morning we show up and now everybody's there trying to check in. And the one thing you need to check in are your health records, right? I had no idea where my health records were. In fact, I didn't even know if I had my health records with me because, again, I was very unorganized. All my my whole preparation was make sure I had my fake ID stuff and my clothes and, <laughs> and everything else. Right. But I did remember collecting like my birth certificate and some other health stuff and putting it in a manila folder. So I told my dad, it's somewhere in my stuff. It's in a manila folder. So we're like scouring through all my stuff in the lobby of the dorm. People are like walking around us to check in. Right. And I'm looking for health records that they're requesting. My dad pulls out the manila folder with all of my <laughs> fake ID stuff in it. My dad, the lawyer, pulls out the manila folder. With all the fake ID stuff in right. it. He goes, here it is. He's all, all excited, right? I found it. And he starts looking through it. And I could see his face. It's like that waitress who looked at my ID. And then looked at it. <laughs> he did the same thing. He looked at it. And then he got really serious and looked at it closely. <laughs> and he goes, what the hell? Mm. <laughs> and then he took it. He took it away from me. So that's far as, that's who Forrest Watkins was. Forrest Watkins was the ID, the Forrest name on Watkins the ID. Was the name on the ID, yeah. Right. And uh, it's funny, funny how that. And he, to his credit, he didn't really make a. You know, after that, he didn't make that big of a deal. He was pissed, but you know, I guess he figured he probably did some knucklehead stuff too when he was a kid. And but that's how I started my 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 college right career. Right. My first my first uh, rejection. <laughs> my first seven. <laughs> so. While we're on college, I know that uh, you had a choice mm-hmm. to make in where you go to school. And, and from what I recall from us talking about it, the choice was either going to be Morehouse or Howard. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Why, yeah. why is that? Does that have some significance in your family? I mean, where did those two choices come from? 
Well, for those people who aren't familiar, Morehouse and Howard are both, you know, top historically black college and university um, schools, mm-hmm. HBCUs. And my first introduction to HBCUs was actually when I was 16 and I met a guy, a buddy by the name of Kirk Hatcher, who became one of my mentors. And he was a Morehouse graduate. So I started doing more research, you know, Martin Luther King with the Morehouse and all these really prominent uh, figures in the African-American community were graduates of Morehouse. And uh, <clears throat> so I just had it in my heart that I was going to go to Morehouse. And plus Morehouse was only a couple hours away from where I was from. But that didn't really make, that was, if anything, that was probably the con because I wanted to get far away from Alabama where I grew up. Right. Just, I wanted to just, there's something inside of me that always wanted to experience the big city. And at the time, Atlanta was a big city compared to Montgomery, Alabama. Mm-hmm. So once I opened that door and then I started asking, well, wait a minute, hold on, what else is around? And then I discovered other universities, Hampton University, Howard University, et cetera. But the big thing was my brother chose to go to Morehouse. Now my brother, my older brother is 11 months older than I am. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd been under his shadow my whole life. So, you know, I didn't want to spend another four years being known as Donald's brother, but Donald's younger brother. I wanted to kind of blaze my own path. And that's, I think that's one of the things that if you're not the oldest sibling, you're like right under the oldest sibling. You, there's a little bit of, it's funny, I was talking to my therapist about this yesterday, about how there was a little bit of competitiveness. Because she was, she was asking me, you know, I have, I have two younger brothers, and she was asking me, um, you know, did I feel like I wasn't getting enough attention from when my younger brothers came on the scene? And I right. said, no, actually, that was the case at all. Because... I, the next gap between me and my my next brother is three years. So, in, and when you're a kid, three years is like, you may as well be, you know, your cousin or somebody. Right. Uh, but my older brother, who's only 11 months older, we shared the same birth. We had we were the same age for one month out of the year. Yeah. So, and he would always be, you know, clued in onto the next fad. You know, he had a Kango before me. He had he was hip to run EMC. <laughs> Where I was, he, he, you know, he always knew what the next hot song was or the next hot fashion trend was. Before you, and I always, yeah, and I always wanted to be the one to say, no, you're not, you're not, you're not onto this yet, and uh, and I never, never, so I, I didn't, I, I, I kind of wanted to always be a leader and blaze my own path in in in, in our dynamic, you know, and in, in a, not in a, I mean, we have a lot of love for each other, so. It wasn't like uh, we were, you know, backstabbing each other or anything like that. It's just, you know, you just wanted to have your own. You wanted to be known for who you were, not because you were someone else's brother. So right. when he decided to go to Morehouse, that kind of killed the Morehouse thing for me. And then I thought, well, let me just figure out where I want to go next. And I, my dad took me up to Howard University, and I remember going there and just knowing that that was exactly where I was meant to be. Okay. And um, and I, and I love DC. DC was a much bigger city than Atlanta. And so for me, that was like, that was, uh, right up my alley of what I wanted. It checked all the boxes, you know, big city, HBCU. I knew I wanted to go to an HBCU and, uh, you know, beautiful women and the whole bit. It's funny. Cause one of, one of the most beautiful girls growing up, she was, she was a sister of a church friend of mine. She was probably three years older than we were, or maybe four years. And so again, that was like an eternity. So she was like a grown woman in my eyes. Right. And, uh, and I, but I remember her being very attractive and she went to, uh, she went to Howard. So I, so 
that was one of my inspirations because, you know, of course, why do anything if a beautiful woman is not attached Did to you catch decision? Up with her no, she was she was gone by the time we, we got there. OK, so. You grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, and I want to ask what it was like, but through my lens, because there's a picture that you have of you sitting on the couch next to Rosa Parks in your living room or wherever that yeah. was. And to me, when I saw yeah. that picture, I was like, first of all, look, there's my there's my friend looking ridiculous at like six years old, but he's sitting next to the <laughs> civil rights icon and he's not tripping. Yeah. So what was it like in that house? I mean, you said that that wasn't even like a, a stretch. That was just a thing. What was it? What was it like? You know, what, man, honestly, that day, you know how when you go around your parents and they introduce you to people and you're like, oh, who's this old lady or who's this old man, yeah. you know, and you just see them as an old person. You know, you don't see them as a as a historical figure or someone who has a lot of wisdom or anything like that mm -hmm. that you would do when you get older. So for me, in that picture you're referring to, I was probably 12 or 13 years old. Man, I was probably thinking about how I should I could have been home playing video games or something like that. I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't tripping on the fact that this was the woman who had basically initiated the modern day civil rights movement. Right. And. Of course, you know, I wish I had it to do over again. I would be completely, you know, immersed in that whole experience if I could go back as as myself now and talk to someone like Rosa Parks because she was our age when all, when all that happened. Right. And uh, so why was she know, there? So you, she was a friend. She's a family friend. Apparently, she's a friend of my grandparents. Um, and that was at my grandparents mother's house. And, uh, yeah, she was, you know, that Montgomery is a small town mm -hmm. and especially back sixties, it was a very small town and my family was there and she was there. And my grandfather was the president of the university at the time, which university? Uh, Alabama state university, okay. Alabama state university, which was like the big college in the town. And, uh, you know, so there, there was, everything was integrated. And they they went to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church where King was was the uh, preacher, mm -hmm. and that was the church that was sort of like the the base camp for all the different strategy meetings for the for the bus boycott, and um, or at least one of them. So I didn't I didn't know exactly what the relationship was, but I I just I I knew that you know I was introduced to this woman Rosa Parks. You hear about her? We lived on Rosa Parks Avenue growing up. Okay. Um, so there was that point of reference, but even still, you know, there wasn't, it just didn't sink in like it would sink in if you're an older person. Right. Yeah. Now I get it. So your grandfather's the president of Alabama state. Your dad's an attorney in town. Um, I'm, I'm trying to just set a basis for who your family is and where you, and, and who they became. And so I want you to also tell about, talk about your uncle who was the surgeon and who he is, was in Baltimore. Well, my dad's whole family, the, the, whose step, whose, my dad's father was the president of the uh, Alabama state and his, his wife, um, she raised all six kids and they were all educators and doctors. And my dad's a lawyer and so there are two brothers, two, two of my dad's brothers were, were doctors. One was a heart surgeon and, and at Johns Hopkins. His name is Levi Watkins. 
And, uh, and he was one of the people or lead guy who discovered or, or developed or the defibrillator, which, um, was a pretty big deal. And, you know, he served on, uh, the board of Johns Hopkins, uh, for a very long time. And he just passed a couple of years ago and his other brother is a doctor as well. Uh, more, more of a, uh, general practitioner in Charlotte, North Carolina, mm-hmm. and uh, and then his, his his sisters were educators, and his one other sister was a, a doctor of math, and so yeah, very educated family, very um, very uh, supportive and of each other, and you know, very close knit, tight tight knit family. Right. So there's that there's that model that old, even immigrant model sometimes, or uh, maybe not even just immigrants, but an old family model, which is if you're going to put the kid through college, they're going to go be a doctor, lawyer, or engineer in some families. And it Mm -hmm. seems like to some extent your family followed those recommendations, maybe through that, that particular generation. Yeah. 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 Very traditional um, career paths. Mm -hmm. Like my, my cousins have all been like, just working in business. And, but I think it, it, I think it's extends beyond just my family. I think you could say most African-American families have that, have that, that kind of mindset, you know, that you need to, in order to become quote unquote successful, you need to have a more traditional career path or, or, you know, you want to be at least making a lot of money or you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to have some sense of control and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that that most of us, most of us have, or at least that generation of the baby boomer generation of parents, um, we're, we're experiencing. Right. So how did that translate into expectations for you? I mean, here you are, we're talking 25 years later off on your own. You're a meditation teacher in Los Angeles. Yeah. You're all the way West coast. You know, your, your career, your chosen career at this time is not in that traditional footprint how does Alabama see you now? How does the, the the Montgomery family see you, and and you know as you've made your progression? What's interesting is my dad told us several times, "Don't whatever you do, don't become a lawyer." Mm-hmm. He he always said you want to work for yourself. My grandmother, his mother, used to always say the cream rises to the top. So if you're really good at what you do, you don't have to worry about how how crowded the field is. You're going to rise rise to the top. So you just have to. So I had that in mind. In my mind is just you have to work really, really hard and you don't have to worry about trying to out compete anyone. You just keep working hard, be the best at what you're doing and you will you'll rise to the top. And for me, that meant you'll you'll get everything you need. You know? And uh, and to their credit, my parents credit, we never they never talked about profession or what you should do or they never even really talked about going to college all that much. Um, they never said don't go to college. The only thing they said don't do is. They discouraged us from playing sports. That's the only thing they told us not to do. And but even as a kid, funny. were you talking about like going off to professional no. sports? Even as a kid, they were like, as don't play kid. basketball, don't play football? Don't play football, don't play basketball. And um, and the reason was because they didn't want us to get hurt. Even like my dad had, Yeah, my dad had this whole thing. My dad, you know, so my dad, he's again, he's from that era. He's from the civil rights era. So his old, his whole thing was, look, you know, these guys who are playing all these professional sports, they're entertainers. They're entertaining people. He says, you want to be the guy owning the sports team. You want to be the guy cutting the check. You don't want to be the guy playing on the field, entertaining mm-hmm. everybody else. That's his mindset, right? I don't necessarily agree with that. Even now, as an old, as an adult, I think sports 
can teach a kid very valuable lessons, especially team sports. Yeah. And uh, obviously, you know, their whole deal with football ended up being, you know, they didn't want us to get paralyzed or get, you know, brain damage and all that. So that ended up being uh, fortuitous, their whole idea around that. But, right. you know, like you said, baseball, there are sports where you can play and, and there, the chances of you getting terminally, you know, ill from that are, are, are going to be very minimal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, so that's the only thing they told us not to do. But other than that, you know, we could pretty much do whatever we wanted to do. They exposed us to art classes. They exposed us to, um, uh, summer programs, whatever we pretty much wanted to do, they would do. They tried to get us into doing some music stuff. And, but you know, back then all you wanted to do was go outside and play. And, and then that was also when video games, Atari and all that stuff first come, first came out. So you played a lot of video games. And I would, I would do a lot of artistic things on my own and build things on my own and, mm-hmm. you know, create like movie, like props in the backyard, like pitfall. Remember the video game pitfall? <laughs> you guys we had a, crates did pitfall and, pits and swinging ropes. Yeah, dude, exactly. You, you did that, right? Of course. You, you, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you could spend a whole afternoon just setting up the pitfall, right. uh, amusement park in your backyard and then see who can do it fastest or whatever that's fun mm-hmm. yeah and then somebody get hurt really bad yeah. you know and or you jump ramps on your huffy bike absolutely setting up a plank land, of wood land the wrong way and bust your lip yeah, yeah or without taking the nails out of the plank of wood first <laughs> right i remember my friends on a nail it's like it's all kinds of you know you just that's what you would do uh, during the days and and uh and they would just you know facilitate all that and so when we eventually went to college, well, my dad did say he wanted us to go to, to a, an HBCU. He saw the value in being surrounded by other um, uh, African Americans who were, you know, also getting educated and yeah. exposed to like diverse environments. And because I think he he realized that there's a networking potential there that mm-hmm. he didn't enjoy when he graduated from Southern Illinois University, and. Um, that people who go to a Howard or Morehouse or Hampton or some or FAMU, you know, you, you end up being able to network with these guys for the rest of your life. So, yeah. So yeah, that, that's kind of how, 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 how they were with, with our, um, career aspirations. They were yeah. very open and supportive. It's funny, you know, all this time I didn't realize that you didn't play any sports. I played every sport, you know, coming up. And it was the way to do something because school lets out like it does now. My kids get out of school. They're home by 2.30. My parents worked until 5 and, you know, sometimes later if they, you know, if the day ran long or whatever. So it was the way to come out of class and then have something to do structured. I played every sport. Any sport I can get my, you know, I can get on the team. If I can make the team, I'm on it. So Yeah, no, I, I was that. very, I was very uh, uncoordinated, awkward, gawky. I was the last. So it's funny because, you know, at the beginning of the year, I'd be the first guy picked on the basketball team because I'd always be the tallest guy. <laughs> I still wouldn't be <laughs> the first. After, <laughs> and then after the first, after the first couple of games, I'd be the last. I'd go all the way from the first guy to the last guy picked. Even like the girls, everybody would be picked before me because I just was so – I was embarrassingly uncoordinated. Right. And some of my most embarrassing moments in primary and secondary education was was on the, on the field um, trying to – catch a ball or trying to kick something. I'm six foot three and a half now. Mm-hmm. So back then I was like five eleven or something like that. Right. As a kid. Are you still playing? Um, Cause I know you played this year on the, uh, 
was it volleyball or soccer or did you did both we did year? volleyball we did volleyball and soccer yeah right. this is adult league volleyball and soccer how was yeah, that i mean i'm i'm very i'm very athletic now you know like since i've been training since after college so one of the best things about going to college is i didn't have to take any more physical education classes you had, mm-hmm. you could you had to do like i think i did i did tai chi in college i did bowling and i did tennis and uh what's funny mm-hmm. is bowling was probably the hardest one of all meaning i did, i was almost going to get a C because I didn't realize that every every time you went up to bowl, you were being graded. <laughs> so I that, know, that's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah. If you score badly, you've been yeah. graded poorly? Yeah. yeah, yeah Not yeah, even yeah. just the yeah. effort. So you had to, how many pins did you get? No. That's crazy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it came down to how many pins. You, so you, I, I was taking a class. I thought I was, you know, the easy A. You go in there and bowl a couple hours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, so physical education – was uh, just not my, it wasn't my thing. I wasn't into it at all. My, you know, my, but my parents also didn't really, my mom would walk. My dad didn't really do, do much uh, physically other than just, he, he, he would always brag about how he walked upstairs and stuff like that when he went to work. But, mm-hmm. you know, no one, there was no real role model in my family for working out or being physical at all. Right. And so again, my dad was more singularly focused around you know, making money, becoming an entrepreneur, working hard and that kind of thing. And, and again, I think there's value to that. But I also I also, you know, with with kids now that I have contact with, I'm always talking about, you know, more of an integrative approach to just experiencing all of it. Yeah. So years later, I'm jumping around a bit because I, I really there's <clears throat> what I'm doing is chasing stories that I know that you'll tell really well that I haven't heard probably in years. <clears throat> so. Years later, you, you become a yoga instructor, and I've skipped past probably uh-huh. a decade. But I want you to tell mm-hmm. the story when you were a yoga instructor and you were given a correction on a yoga student and her boyfriend was looking from the window and he was getting all triggered because you were adjusting her shoulders yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So um, I became a yoga teacher when I was 29. Mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. What gym was it? Crunch? Where was it? I was teaching at Crunch Gym. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. one of the first places I had taught. And I was actually pretty good at it. And uh, so my classes would be fairly crowded. And you know, this is LA. This is West Hollywood. So you get all these really attractive people yeah. in the in the yoga classes. So it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't unusual to have like really attractive men and women in the class. And this particular day, there was this very attractive woman in the class. And, you know, look, I'm a yoga teacher, but I'm still a guy. So I'm, I'm obviously I noticed her. I noticed that, oh, that's a very attractive woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a yoga teacher, you 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 give adjustments sometimes and um, meaning you help people go deeper in a pose or you just kind of give people an assist in some way to kind of help open up a certain part of their body. Nothing inappropriate. Um, but you know, you do, it's not unusual for a yoga teacher to come and like put their hands on the shoulders or put their hands on someone's back just to kind of help, uh, get them a person to lengthen their back or something like that. You wouldn't put your hands on someone's butt or, you know, some close up in someone's inner thigh or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's just something that happens in yoga classes if you've never been to a yoga class before. But at the end of the yoga class, it's really common for a yoga teacher to go around and just while people are lying in there on their back in what they call corpse pose, where you just have your eyes closed, you're just literally, it's like you're just lying flat, 
your palms are facing up, your feet are out to the side. And the yoga teacher will go around during this time, and it probably will last maybe 10 minutes, and they'll just go around and just gently press down onto the the person's shoulders. So just imagine you're, you're, you're kind of standing over someone, your feet are on either side of that person, and you're just bending over and pressing your hands onto their shoulders. Right. So, and, it, and when you're in the pose, it actually feels really good when someone is pressing down on your shoulders because it's kind of opening up your, your heart region, your, your chest, mm-hmm. and giving you that kind of release. So, you're, so as a teacher, you're going down the line of students because they're in a line. There's maybe like two rows or three rows depending on how many people are in the class. And you're going down one person pressing down the shoulders and then you're going down the next person pressing down the shoulders like that. And so you're just kind of – you're like cakewalking around so you're not making a lot of noise. Right. And you're just very, very gentle, gently pressing down these shoulders. So you can see them but they have their eyes closed so they can't see you. Now meanwhile, I'm doing this at this particular class. And there's a glass wall, so everyone who's in the gym is out outside of the class working out, but anyone can see into the room everything that's happening. Right. And I get to this this particularly beautiful woman, and I'm pressing down on her shoulders. And as I'm pressing down on her shoulders, you know, I'm just kind of looking. I'm either looking at her or looking away. I, mean, I don't know where I'm looking because, again, I'm, I'm just sitting, I'm just there with my eyes open, obviously, so I don't step on anybody. And then I hear this guy banging on the glass. Everybody, wait, everybody's in Savasana, chilling. Everyone's like in corpse pose. Yeah, chilling. I've got this like peaceful spa music playing. The lights are turned low. The, li- the lights are off. <laughs> and then I hear this banging on the glass, and I turn and look, and it's this guy who's who's like saying something. You can't hear him through the glass and the music, but he's basically mouthing. He's very pissed off, and he's mouthing for me to to. He's pointing to the girl, pointing to me, and basically making it making it known that he's going to kick my ass or something like that if I if I don't stop touching the girl. So I'm like trying to calm him down using kind of you know sign language and uh, miming to him like everything is okay, right. this is common. He doesn't get it. He's probably never been in a yoga class in his entire life. You know, he's, he was kind of you could tell he was like a bit rough around the edges. This guy. Yeah. Obviously, and and easily triggered, and so now the tension is is up more in the room, and um, and I didn't I didn't know if anybody noticed. I don't know how you could not have noticed that someone was banging on the window, but everyone right. just stayed in the in the pose, and I kept going, and I went to the next person and the next person like that, and now I'm spending the rest of the five minutes of the class trying to figure out, okay, um, <laughs> am I going to get into a fight now? Is that how this <laughs> is going to end, or? Like, what is what's about to happen? Do I need to apologize? Like, what what do I need to do? Because obviously, I don't want to get into a fight with some guy at the end of my yoga class in the middle of Crunch Gym, right. who's like a hot head or whatever. He's got a weight in his hand or something like that. And I, and then part of me thought, well, he can't be that serious. I mean, this can't be. The, Did he the, stick around? So anyway, so people started filing out when the class ended and everyone played it cool. Like no one, but there was one guy who kind of hung around and this is, he was a regular guy in my class and I wasn't sure what he knew or didn't know, but he was close to the window and the guy comes up to me and tells me that if he, we, we were in the streets in Brooklyn or whatever he's from, he would kick my ass on site and blah, blah, blah. And I should be touching people's girlfriends. And, <laughs> and I was just trying to, it was like me trying to explain physics to a, uh, a, a moose, you know, <laughs> just, he was 
he wasn't interested in anything I had to say about why I was doing what I was doing. Right. And uh, but the guy that stuck around, he later on he came to me and said, "Look, I heard, I saw, I saw what was happening. I, I'm, I was hanging out just in case, you know, you needed to back up or whatever." That was really cool to see that the guy had my back, and right. um, and 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 the situation de-escalated. I never saw them again. So that was that was probably the most intense yoga experience I had in the six years of me teaching yoga. That's funny. So this guy is is what we'll call we call triggered. It's a common phrase that we'll, we'll talk about every every once in a while which leads us to meditation if that guy was mm-hmm. in your class or he was a meditator how would we expect his life to change i mean what what let's 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 talk about it the, the value of meditation and, and what was that guy on that maybe you could have helped him with well what i learned later um through my studies with meditation was that <clears throat> we as as humans we when we react to things um, we, our body stores up memories and those memories, if they're associated with a, a distressful reaction, which is what he was displaying that, that morning, that would be known as a stress trigger, a stress memory, right? Somebody touched and his girlfriend and that just triggered this memory. Yeah, no. Well, well, yeah, exactly. Cause, cause, cause really the, the, the initial trigger was probably, uh, received when he was a child, you know, and maybe someone was abusing his mother or someone was, you know, abandoning him in some way. And that obviously put him in a state of distress or anxiety. And so the body will store that what that emotion felt like, and it will relate it to a certain visual or certain scenario or certain taste or sound or, you know, sensation. Mm -hmm. So if the trigger stays in the body, which triggers can do, triggers can stay in the body for the duration of body life, and then 10 years later or 20 years later, you're around a, a certain situation that reminds your body of what happened to it when you were eight years old, then you get triggered. And what that means is the part of your brain that gives you the ability to say, look, that's just a yoga class. You know, they do that in all the yoga classes. It's not a big deal. And even if it is the guy that's being a little bit creepy, um, <laughs> she's my girlfriend and you know, she's not going to let anything inappropriate happen to her. That part of the brain shuts down and gets rerouted to your, uh, reptilian brain, your amygdala, which is basically your fear center. And, this is what makes us more animalistic in nature, and it gives us basically two options. We can run away or we can fight. He chose to fight. So him banging on the window was the expression of the flight – or I'm sorry, of the fight reaction and the fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. And, and what that does when you, when, you, um, when you allow that trigger to take, take over your whole system is it, it hardwires the connection between – the situation and the emotion, the distressful emotions, which means the next time somebody may just look at the girl and he gets triggered. And then the next time he may just imagine that someone is doing something with his girl and he gets triggered. And so it continues to snowball. We call it the snowball effect. Continues to snowball into um, just becoming triggered really for no reason at all. And, and I think we all know people like this who are just very easily uh, – incited into into anger or you know sadness or what have you depression and it's not because they don't want to 
see the bright side or see the big picture is because their body usually has accumulated so much stress or been exposed to so much trauma that it takes over. They become the terminator. It just takes them over and they can't even help it. And so what meditation does is meditation basically creates a release valve for this stress, this accumulated stress triggers so that the body now has a way of getting rid of this stuff. Um, because that's what the body does when it meditates is it literally rehabilitates itself in real time. And the way you know it's working is because then you'll be in the same situation that would have triggered you before, but it doesn't have the same effect. You may, you may not even notice that you didn't react in the same way that you would have reacted in the past. Right. So, so he could be at the next yoga class a year later and not trip. Right. Exactly. Right. He's not tripping. You yeah. said um, in your book, in the new book, Blissmore, the movement, Blissmore, that uh, when you first went to learn yoga, you sat in this class where the lady was playing like uh, some electro music that was made by a surfer guy who, uh, you know, was now held up as the hero. Uh, but he was he committed suicide. And you weren't allowed to lean back in the chair. And you said you sat in it and you thought half sarcastically and half optimistically because you wanted it to work. And now, 20 years later, you have people come sit in your space and they listen to your, uh, your, your intro talk. And you have to recognize that in some of those people, they probably have those same feelings. Can you see it when you're sitting there that some people are sarcastic and, and, and others are maybe have, you know, super optimistic. What do you see? What do you see from your seat? You know, I think the differences in those two experiences that, so what you're describing was one of my first experiences with formal meditation mm -hmm. uh, instruction. And I don't think looking back on it now, I don't think the facilitator did a great job of managing our expectations. And you see this a lot in meditation circles where when the guy, when the meditation guide or facilitator doesn't really fully understand what the experience is or what it entails, or they they themselves are having to kind of buy into this sort of leap of faith um, understanding of, you know, you just do it, just do it, and it'll just whatever's supposed to work will work. But they don't really know how it works or why it works. Um, then it's not they can't really properly manage an expectation, so they end up defaulting to kind of uh, overselling the experience. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you've read about, you know, you've read about Nirvana, you've read about these concepts like Samadhi, you know, in, in the different new age spiritual books <clears throat> and bliss. Bliss is a word that's always is very commonly associated with meditation. So I had these expectations of having an experience of bliss or, you know, Nirvana and I remember just not being able to feel anything and feeling like there was something wrong with me because you also have people who pretend like they feel things that they don't actually feel. And I'm not saying that that's what the people in the room that I was in was doing, but um, no one could really describe or explain what their experience was in a way that felt genuine and authentic to me. And, and also I'm a natural skeptic. I think you probably are too. Um, uh, so I, I kind of need evidence. I need, I can't just go on faith 
around something that is so nebulous and so ambiguous um, in, in practice. But that didn't stop me from continuing to expose myself to it. And so later on, when I met my teacher, my teacher teacher, about four years later, and I finally had someone in front of me who could explain to me what was going on in a way that was accessible and just made a lot of real world sense. That's where I really um, accelerated my meditation practice. And I started doing it like clockwork. And I started feeling the tangible thing that I'd been looking for for those in those first few years. Mm -hmm. And that completely changed my relationship. So then he taught me how to do that. And so what I was going to say before is the difference is, and, and what I do and what that uh, earlier facilitator did for me is I, I have a much better way of managing expectations. And again, being a, a lifelong skeptic, I already know what people are thinking when they come in the door. So I like to, to put people at ease. And, you know, people, oh, to their credit, people who come to see me for the most part, like I've never had anyone heckle me during one of my talks. I've never had anyone blurt out anything overtly sarcastic during one of my talks. Cause I think it's pretty clear when I start talking, who's the authority on meditation in the room and right. who's not. And, um, so most people have been very respectful, but you know, some people, you know, you can tell with their body language, oh, this person is probably a little bit closed off to what I'm saying, or what I'm saying is challenging their beliefs in some way that they probably are either going to have to um, convince themselves of something that doesn't make a lot of sense in order to hold on to those old beliefs, or they're going to have to buy into this, this kind of new way that makes more sense to their personal experience, their direct personal experience. And so not everybody is, is going to take, you know, take the leap into the training with me, but without exception, the people who do are always grateful that they did. And and that's a part of, and that is built in as a part of the experience. Like you're supposed to feel a little bit like, oh my God, this is a lot. This is a lot of money. This is a, a lot of time investment. I don't really know this person. I just met him an hour ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. And, and so that, that level of uncertainty is what makes the payoff even greater when they do it and they're like, Oh my God, this is exactly what I needed. I didn't even know that I needed this. I didn't even have language for what was missing, but now I, now everything becomes clear. And I, I already know they're going to have that experience. So for me, it's, it's still, it's somewhat frustrating when you, when you get the pushback, because you know, you know that they're going to just love what you're going to show them. And and it's also kind of fun knowing that, you know, being a, being in on the secret that, yeah, this is going to blow your mind right. and I'm actually going to deliver on everything that I'm saying and your whole life is about to change, but you don't even realize it. And you're, you're sitting in, in your chair in your head thinking is, you know, I, I can't afford to spend whatever, $500 <laughs> to change my life, to start sleeping better at night and, you know, all the different legendary benefits of meditation. Right. So I think that, I think it's a good, it's a good filter because it's such an analog experience that in order for me to do what I do in 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 the best way possible, and I take my job very seriously and I really do treat everybody like they're like they're, you know, Barack Obama sitting in my home studio learning how to meditate. Like I pull out all the stops 
and uh, and take my time and get, you know just make sure everybody understands everything before we finish this the training. And so it, you know I can't do that with a thousand people a week. I can only do that with a hand like maybe a dozen people at a time. So it's kind of a self-selecting process. The people who are feeling called to do it, they do it. The people who don't, don't. And it all just kind of works out in the end. And that's one of the reasons why I ended up writing the book, Bliss More, is because, you know, I think at a lower level of investment of time or, or resources or whatever, you should still be able to at least understand the principles by which people are actually having the, the experience in meditation. And, right. and I wanted to, I wanted to disseminate those principles as widely as possible. So the people who haven't heard of me or the people, you know, who can't afford to come and sit in on my classes, even though they may want to, um, can still have access to this, this knowledge and still have, uh, profound experiences in meditation. So, um, so that was the intention behind that. You bring up the idea that, um, you know, part of the experience is, that people will say, oh, this is a lot, either a lot of time out of my schedule or a lot to commit to or a lot of money to take the course and spend this time, you know, with with you to learn. And how do you mm -hmm. you must get some shit. How do you equate uh, when when you hear from people in, you know, on the outskirts that say, oh, that guy is teaching something that should be free or yeah. uh, or how does he how do you justify the business portion of what you do, given that the, the teaching is something that people will say, oh, it should be God-given and innate or whatever? Yeah, that's a good good question. And, I, and you're right. I, I, I probably do get more shit behind my back than I do to my face. Mm -hmm. People aren't really as quick to say anything like that to my face. But, you know, you hear people mumbling and stuff and, oh, this should be less expensive. But what's funny about that is we look at <laughs> – I mean, it's – you know, there's nothing free. There's, there's no free anything in, in – in existence, everything has a cost. It doesn't necessarily have to be a money, a monetary cost, but it could be a time cost, could be an attention cost. Mm -hmm. And what I do, and the way that I, the way that I structure the whole thing, I basically have people come to a free, like sort of intro session, I call it, which is an orientation, and really it's a way for them to meet me and 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 to kind of see how I embody what I'm teaching. And it's also an opportunity for me to meet them and determine whether or not I want to be tied into this person indefinitely because once I agree to teach someone, I'm agreeing to become their teacher for the rest of their life. So it's not just a weekend long proposition. It's a lifetime commitment for me as a teacher. And I want to make sure that I'm with people who are sincere, who are authentic, who really want to, you know, who are committed to following the instructions, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so the next step in the process is I have people make a contribution for their instruction and it's a sliding scale contribution that they determine for themselves on the honor system, right? And it starts at, I think, $500 if you're a student or if you're unemployed, it's it's $700, and it goes all the way up to $1,500. And so it's a one-time contribution, and what that does is it, it, it pays for your personal instruction with me over the course of four days or so. And then it also advance funds a lifetime of unlimited follow-up, and support, which means you can come back to any of my trainings over the course of your life and you can re retake them for no cost. And you can also reach out to me and ask me questions, um, you know, as much as you need to keep your meditation practice self-sufficient. And that's also at no cost. And when people go through this training, 
because they've invested on their own accord. You know, they came up with that amount. I didn't tell them you should do $900 or you should do $1,100. I say base it off of your income. If you are earning, you know, $200,000 a year, you should be at the top of the scale. If you're earning, you know, $90,000 a year, then you're going to be somewhere in the middle. But you have to, you have to, in good faith and in your highest integrity, you have to determine your amount. And I find that most people are pretty honest. And if you don't want to be honest, they just usually don't take the training. So it's a self-selected amount. And what that does is it invests them into really paying attention in the training Mm -hmm. and to really giving it the shot that I think meditation deserves beyond the training, you know, because there are going to be periods of time where either they're going to change as a result of the meditation or the meditation is going to change as a result of them continuing to practice and refine it. You know, the schedule may change. Somebody may come to town. They may go on a road trip. They may get sick. They may get pregnant. They may get divorced. Um, They may have a child rebelling. And all of these different life changes can derail a meditation practice. And and because they invested in it on the front end, um, usually it's enough for them to say, you know what, even though it's not convenient for me to do right now, I'm still going to sit down and do my meditation. And because they are that committed, then they end up doing it consistently enough to get the benefits from it. And then they start to see, oh, wow, look, I'm, I'm actually sleeping better at night. Right. And then eventually, oh, wow, look, I'm sleeping like a baby at night. And then they start to see because they're sleeping better, they're more rested, they have more energy, they're making better choices in their daytime life. They're seeing more connections between things. They're able to do more things at the same time without getting distracted. Mm-hmm. So it's not about becoming you know, this kind of soft-spoken, you know, gullible, <laughs> turn the other cheek, you know, uh, cartoonish version of Gandhi. It's about becoming the best version of you. And that's what the meditation does, but it doesn't happen overnight. And so I need people to be invested in it in the beginning in order for them to get to the point where they're, they're coasting and they're, they achieve what I call liftoff, where they're not having to really think about it much, to plan it much. It's just happening. Their bodies have become dependent on the chemicals that get released during the meditation. And it's just a practice. They actually wake up in the morning um, very much looking forward to. It's just like when that show Breaking Bad was out, you know, I would wake up in the on Sunday mornings and I would schedule my whole day around um, <laughs> watching Breaking Bad. And I know a lot of people do this with their shows that they watch. And it's no exaggeration that I feel the same way about my meditation practice. Even to this day, I feel the same way about my meditation practice. If you don't make that kind of investment in the front end, I haven't seen very positive results with people sticking to it. And so then you have to question, you know, um, you have to, you have to, you have to, so then the alternative in that situation is, okay, well, I, I tried it out this one thing. I tried out this one thing. I read a book or whatever, and I spent some time doing it. I wasn't sure if I was doing it right. So that's a, there's a cost to that, right? You're mm-hmm. wasting your time. Then I tried this other thing, this other YouTube video, and I tried that for a couple of weeks and I wasn't sure if I was doing it right. So all that uncertainty is actually, a, there's a cost to that uncertainty. You're spending time precious time doing something and you're not even sure if you're doing it right. Right. There's a cost to that. And then someone else may say, well, no, I I go to the 10 day silent retreat and that's my, you know, that's free. Okay. Let's look at it. You're taking 10 days out of your life, 
off your job, away from your family, away from your obligations and responsibilities. So that's free, right? No, that's not free. There's a cost to that. You know, how much do you get paid in a week? How much do you get paid in 10 days of having to work? So there's that cost. And then they get you there for 10 days. You can't talk. Okay. There's a cost to that. Not being able to talk for 10 days, right? It's not a monetary cost. It's a will cost. You're having to use your will to not speak. You can't look at anybody. You're only eating one vegetarian meal a day and some tea. So there's a cost to that. And what they're doing is they're setting the conditions for you to have an experience in the middle of the forest, right? And then at the end, after they've given you lodging, they've given you your vegetarian meal, they've given you the instruction for the meditation for 12 hours a day, then they say, okay, uh, you know, the way we run this center is, you know, we, we run off of donations. If you if you want to donate, great. If you don't want to donate, don't worry about it. Now, of course, what are you going to feel at the end donate. of that? I got, I got to donate something. Right. Yeah, exactly. I can't be a freeloader. Because it's already embedded in us that if we get something, we have to give something. Right. You don't want to be a Welsher. You've been given something of value right. already. Yeah. Right. But if you're a first timer and you didn't see that coming, then you may think, oh, well, that, you know, that's a bait and switch situation. I thought this was free. And so, you know, it's up to you. But again, we're talking about your integrity. And if you leave without donating something, then that gnaws at you. Yeah. You know, and if it doesn't gnaw at you, then that well, that means I'm a sociopath, you know, and that a that's a cost person. to that. Yeah. Right. I'm a bad person. There's a cost to that. So what I like about this system that I do is you get to determine your own cost at the very front end. No one is going to determine that for you at any point in time in the back end where you have to feel bad about it and all of that. And that's what usually happens with these other things is people end up getting the cost determined for them later on. And it usually ends with them having a bitter taste in their mouth, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, on that 10 day silent retreat thing, the going home program is an hour in the morning and an hour at night. Now you have a family, you got a dog, you got a wife, you got two kids. Do you have an extra two hours in your day no. to meditate? Exactly. So even if you want it to meditate, if you're a regular person, then, and you're not in the forest anymore and you're not. You know, you can't tell your wife, look, we're just going to be silent and don't look at me <laughs> and uh, just make sure I have my food, my one meal a day. <laughs> just make sure it's here. Slide under the door. Can you, can you imagine? <laughs> no. <laughs> you get smacked in the face. So you have to be able to integrate that kind of thing. And that's, that's what happens is like if you learn in the forest, it's really hard to come back and integrate it. And I, I'm not discounting the technique, but I am saying that I know a lot of people who've had that experience and very, very few of them actually continue on meditating in the way that they were trained for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. And so the way that I teach people how to meditate is I teach you while you're already in your regular environment and I teach you how to do it for 15, 20 minutes in the morning when you wake up. Mm-hmm. When you're lying there gathering your thoughts anyway, you may as well be sitting there meditating, just sliding up to your headboard and meditating and you can get a better quality of rest in those 20 minutes. And then at some point in the afternoon or evening. Now, what's already happening in the afternoon, whether you're meditating or not, you're getting a little energy slump, right? And that's where people start going for this. Yeah. And what do they start going for? Sugar. The the donut, the Twinkie. Mm -hmm. I need another coffee, you know? So I call that dirty energy. You need energy, but there's a cost to it. There's a downside. There's a side effect where you get a sugar crash or you get a headache later or you get the coffee jitters. 
you know, or you get you gain weight because you couldn't you couldn't stop eating the carbs. And meditation, if you stop and go to your car or go to your closet or just close your office door and you sit down for another 15, 20 minutes, you will come out feeling like you just slept for another 10 hours because that's how restful the meditation is that I teach. Right. And so that gives you clean energy. You do that and there's no side of the only side effect is you, you're happier, you're more focused and you feel like taking on the whole world. So you have a really strong finish to your day. Or if you're going to the gym, you have a better workout. Or if you're going home, you're able to communicate better with your spouse because you're not feeling exhausted, you know, mentally tired from from whatever happened during that day. And you, it's it's kind of like a little internal reset button that we can press at any time. And it's it ends up becoming the most powerful thing that people that regular people can experience on a daily basis. So, meditation is part of what we'll call a wellness lifestyle. And you kind of live in the, the cradle of wellness communication out in uh, Santa Monica, Malibu, not, not Malibu, Santa Monica, Venice area. Mm-hmm. What else would you include in that wellness lifestyle? If you were to write a prescription for like a wellness lifestyle, what other facets would you include in, in, in there with meditation? Well, I'm glad you asked, asked that because, you know, a lot of times – Again, with a lot of meditation facilitators and guides, they'll make it. They'll paint meditation out to be this this panacea for everything. Right. You know, every every everything that's wrong with you comes back to well, you just have to meditate. <laughs> and uh, and I think that's kind of ridiculous. I think meditation is kind of like Jiffy Lube. You know, the Come oil, oil change. Right. Yeah, you you got to get your oil changed. Right. You can't get around if you want your car to perform optimally. You can't get around the oil change. Right. If you don't get the oil change and the carburetor falls out or whatever, um, and you take it to you roll up in Jiffy Lube, you know you get the tow truck to bring it to Jiffy Lube. They gotta look at you crazy. Like, what do you want us to do? Right. <laughs> we can't fix this. You're gonna have to spend the eight thousand dollars to get it fixed over at uh, Jimmy's Body Shop. Right. So, meditation is preventative when it's used properly. It's not emergency medicine. It's not a crisis tool for overcoming, you know, some big trauma. And I, and I think one of the mistakes people make is they wait until, you know, we have a mutual friend who is a newscaster and, um, you know, she, she had an experience recently. We were all in college together and this is what, 20 something years later, mm-hmm. we had an experience where she put something on, on social media saying that she had developed a stutter. Now she's a newscaster. That's her job. Who out of the, right. out of the blue developed a stutter. So obviously that's problematic. And she went to the doctor and they didn't have any, this is all her words, right? So I'm not speculating here. She told us on Facebook, she went to the doctor, they didn't have any answers for the stutter, but they suspected that it was happening as a, as a result of stress. And when she said that, it made sense. It, 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 it resonated with my understanding of how stress works because that's, that's exactly what happens when we build up so much stress it debilitates our ability to function naturally, optimally. And, and the, the regular things that we took for granted, such as our digestive system, our reproduction system, our immune system even, can go offline if, if we have too much stress and not enough of a way to release the stress. Um, and so she, had came, she did another video saying that she had started doing uh, stillness meditation practices and things like that. And, uh, and that her situation was getting better. 
And, and, and it's not unusual for me to see people come into the door with all kinds of really interesting ailments that the doctors have no explanations for. They start meditating and they end up experiencing remission and other things that they never even thought could be cured from just sitting down and, and meditating. But it's, it's pretty remarkable what, what I've seen uh, in, in, in regular people. And even if, even if it doesn't feel like anything big is happening, we don't know what's being prevented. You know, like there's a friend who we both know, I won't mention her name, but she, um, she's, she had a thing where she would drink all this soda every day. Mm -hmm. She would drink like 10 cans of soda a day. And if you just look at her on the surface, she's like this beautiful, healthy, radiant looking person. And so she was kind of obviously a little embarrassed about this because, you know, it doesn't sound good when you tell people in the wellness community, hey, I'm drinking 10 cans of soda and I can't really help it. Right. So she started meditating. And then about a month and a half later, she she said, look, I, I, uh, I stopped drinking the soda. I just stopped. I don't, I don't even desire it anymore. And uh, and she told me that I said, you know. Do you find it coincidental that you started meditating and you stopped drinking soda? And she's like, no, 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 that's not what it was. That's, I said, well, look, the only thing you've done differently is you start, you've been meditating and now you just have no desire for, for this thing you've been doing for years and years. Mm -hmm. And then she finally thought about it and she goes, yeah, maybe. But, you know, from my perspective, having worked with people for over 10 years, that's, I see that all the time. It's not unusual at all. So, when it comes to you know overall wellness, I think meditation is one of those key habits, meaning it will put you in a position where you may decide, I don't want to be in this abusive relationship anymore, or I don't want to be in this dead-end job anymore, yeah. or I don't want to keep consuming these carbohydrate-rich foods anymore. You know, and then everything starts to domino from there. You start to to get on a better diet program, you start to seek out better. Um, relationships, you start to look for better employment opportunities and all these other things that also have an effect on your health, which is really, you know, stemming from your perception, your mind, your emotions. I mean, that's bigger than any, anything you could eat or drink. If you're, and that was one of the things that I experienced as a vegan, you know, I was vegan for 12 years, as you know, mm -hmm. And I, and, I, and I remember, you know, this is back before they had all these vegan restaurants everywhere. So when I started traveling a lot for work, it was very challenging to find clean, healthy vegan food in airports and, you know, in these other cities that weren't L.A. and New York. I remember going to Alabama. We would go to Cracker Barrel, Cracker Barrel for <laughs> you know, dinner and I would order the, uh, the garden salad. And then I'd have to say, oh, can I have it without the ham? without the ranch dressing, without the croutons, without the bacon bits. And my family would start rolling their eyes and start apologizing <laughs> to the waiter because I was this like LA, you know, kid coming, telling him, making all these modifications. But I just wanted a salad without all this crap in it. Yeah. And uh, so now, now, now that the world is kind of caught up to that diet, I'm actually not a vegan anymore. But, you know, I think diet is important. Diet is important, but it's not as important as getting frustrated or getting – if you're stressed out all the time because they don't have your food, then your body's not able to metabolize the nutrients from the raw, vegan, organic food you're ordering anyway. So 
you may as well be eating McDonald's in that case. So I think stress is the main thing to kind of mitigate. If you can get rid of the stress, everything else will work better. And, and so um, that definitely needs to be a part of the wellness package, the meditation. And, and I'm not talking about weekly you know, I do it every week with my group at church or whatever. I'm you got you have to do it every day. It's just like working out. You can't work out for 20 minutes once a week and and call yourself a person who's physically active. Right. You know, that's just not how it works. You have to do something regularly in order for the body to respond to it. Because what people don't realize is that when you start off in a practice like meditation, that's a new habit, but you're also and at the same time, you're breaking the old habit of not meditating. And it's just like what you've talked about with, with exercise. You know, When you're coming off the couch, the reason why coming off the couch and going into the gym is hard is because your body has developed the habit of sitting on the couch. So those muscles have atrophied, and that's, a ha- that's habitual. That's from habitual, sedentary lifestyle behavior. And so opening that up and breaking that down causes obviously some withdrawal symptoms from the sedentary lifestyle, which is what people usually experience as soreness in their muscles. Mm -hmm. And with meditation, the biggest, biggest misconception with meditation is when people come off the couch (laughs) or I should say come out of, uh, you know, the, come off the treadmill, uh, the, the hamster wheel of life and sit on the couch to meditate. Um, they complain about their monkey mind. They call it the monkey mind because the mind is so erratic. And what that is, that the monkey mind is to meditation what sore muscles are to the person coming off the couch, going to the gym, working out for the first time in a long time. Okay. It's the withdrawal symptoms of the mind that has not experienced that meditation in years and for some people decades. And so it's not a symptom of the meditation is not working. It's actually a symptom of the opposite. The meditation is working. It's breaking down the old interneuronal connections. You may find yourself even thinking about old scenarios like the guy who was banging on the window at the yoga class. Like He may sit down and meditate. In his first few meditations, he may be thinking about that thing that happened that traumatized him when he was eight years old where his, you know, his mom was being abused or whatever. That may come up in the meditation, and he may interpret that as, oh, it's not working. I'm just sitting here thinking about this crazy thing, not realizing that when his body is releasing the stress triggers, it causes his mind to have these, these old memories and maybe even start racing and obsessing on some old conversation related to that emotion that's being uh, neutralized in his body. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize it until later on, again, when you're in a, certain, a similar situation and you're not triggered. And that's your indication that the meditation is working. Got it. So we've got meditation, which is shedding stress, recovery. You mentioned food, eating things that are going to nourish your cells. What else is in that wellness mm-hmm. lifestyle? Well, I think you got to, you have to work out, you have to exercise, you got to move the body. You have to, you have to be a, you know, you have to express gratitude um, for what you have. Cause otherwise if you don't express gratitude is a very slippery slope into the comparison mindset, especially with social media these days, you know, you get on social media and you start thinking everybody else has it all figured out. Everyone else is 10 steps ahead of me. Um, you know, and, uh, t- and, and 10 times more attractive than I am and, and, uh, 10 times smarter and 10 times more spiritual and all of these things. So 
what meditation does is it allows you to have a more fulfill, fulfilling relationship with your true, your true self, your essence, your spirit, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And when that gets boosted and solidified, then naturally you start to compare yourself less and less to other people. And, and it allows you to not only not compare yourself, but to appreciate the differences and then ultimately to to, to be grateful for the differences and for the, the diversity of life and to even uh, reach out and, and, you know, congratulate people sincerely when they're doing well in life. And even if they're trying to do the same thing that you're trying to do, you can, you can, you can operate from a more of a level of gratitude than uh, resentment, that quiet resentment that we sometimes uh, harbor when we feel like, you know, I'm better than them, but they're getting more opportunities than I am. Mm-hmm. And we've all been there. And so I'm speaking from experience, but you know, what meditation has done for me is it allows me to just kind of pull that lens back a little bit more and just see that I'm right where I need to be at all times. So that's important. And then also nurturing, uh, fruitful, positive relationships. You know, we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with and meditation will help you prune those friendships like nothing else. Cause you'll start to see, uh, how much insecurity and how much, um, how much codependency there exists in humans in general. And, you know, there's always people out there who are well-intentioned and trying to do the best they can. And sometimes, you know, that it's the season for you to step in and be there, become their mentor and within the friendship. And, and sometimes it's the season for them to step in and become your mentor. And so it's not about, you know, seeing yourself as better than anyone else when you meditate, but just recognizing that people come into your life uh, at times that are most relevant for, for both parties and people leave and, and if they, if they leave or if things change, it's not the end of the world. It's, uh, it, it just means that someone else is going to step in and, um, and, and, and provide some other type of experience for us that is going to benefit everyone in some meaningful way. And so you have less of that kind of FOMO attitude around, relationships because your inner internal guidance is always taking you in the direction of, you know, meaningful connections and going deep instead of wide. And, you know, and, and a part of that too, is you, you may have less of a desire to engage in addictive behaviors and substance abuses that I think a lot of people rely upon to try to connect, uh, socially. And you may find that you don't go to bars as much, you don't drink as much. And, and that geared, that steers you towards, you know, um, a painting class or some other, you know, meetup group where you're, you're connecting with people around more substantive activities where you guys are being more creative together, or you're exploring more, just more interesting possibilities. And just, let's see how much we can drink tonight and, and, and lose our consciousness and then wake up in the morning and brag about it like that, that after a while, just is not as interesting. How important is are, are these elements these that we talked about in terms of what a wellness lifestyle is? How important are those things in terms of attraction and and, and make it specific to you? So you're you're out, you see a you know a gorgeous woman, or you're in you're you're on your volleyball team, uh, mm-hmm. and you know one of your teammates brings a couple of her friends, and you're attracted to this to a woman. Mm-hmm. How important is it as you get to know her, whether or not she is a person who works out, a person who, uh, you know, eats really, you know, healthy foods or a person who meditates or doesn't? Does that I'm sure it comes up. I know it comes up. So what are your thoughts? Well, just on? to keep it real, look, uh, I've never been married before. I don't have kids. 
Um, but I'm a heterosexual male, so I definitely love women and I date women. And um, what I found as I've gotten to be more mature uh, is that instead of me trying to chase after someone and trying to convince them and force them to like what I like, what I found is that the people who are into me naturally are almost always open to, if they're not already in the lifestyle, they're open to um, exploring the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Like it's really, really hard because it's such a part of me now, this whole lifestyle that if you're messing, with, if you're messing around with me, you're, you, it's, you, you're not going to be, you know, uh, smoking cigarettes. Smoking, yeah, you're not going to be chain smoking cigarettes and <laughs> going out drinking two bottles of wine at night. That's just not, that's not, right. that, those are not the people that I attract. I, I usually attract, in fact, it's not even surprising anymore. I attract people and they go, oh yeah, I'm a vegan or I'm a, you know, I'm, I've been meditating for 10 years or whatever. And we may not be doing the same type of meditation or the same type of diet, but there's some mindfulness uh, or thoughtfulness that goes into their lifestyle. So I've kind of had that experience so many times I don't even really question it anymore. And, and it also is a good filter for me because if I, if I express interest in someone and there's no reciprocity, then I just already know that, okay, vibrationally, this is not a match. No matter what it looks like on the surface, no matter what it looks like on paper, you know, she could be the most beautiful or the most interesting person or what have you. But if there's no, if there's no resonance, then, you know, there's something going on. And, and then later on, I'll find out, you know, oh yeah, I was going through this really dark time or, or I was involved in, with someone else who was, you know, I was, I couldn't get out of that situation. It was, there was always an explanation later on. So I just come to trust that and trust in my inner guidance. And, you know, I've had so many experiences in my life at this point where I'd listened to my inner guidance and I've never been led astray that now I just don't even question it anymore. I mean, I still question it sometimes, but I'm pretty good at just, even if I'm questioning it to just follow through with it and, and, and kind of, um, allow it to guide me. And I don't mean that that people can hear that and take that in a way where it says, well, you just don't, you know, you you lay lay around and just let stuff happen. No, I actually, I'm I'm the hardest worker that I know actually. And I think I consider it my job to do the best that I can to prepare myself. So I'm working out, you know, I'm making sure I'm the most attractive potential partner that I can be. You know, I'm working out, I'm eating well, I'm taking care of myself, I'm meditating, I'm, you know, making sure that I'm abundant and all of these things. So if I'm doing everything I can and it's not working out, then it's just not meant to be. Right. You know, I'm definitely not laying around waiting for something to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the book, what's, what's funny about the book is I, I don't feel like I wrote the book by any stretch, but I was definitely there every day of the process in, in, you know, actually with both books. So the inner gym was self-published. You can do whatever you want. And I know your mission for bliss more, as you said earlier, was to give an entry point for people who necessarily wouldn't come and do the full, the full experience to still have access to, a technique and, and see value in, in meditation. How do you, uh, how do you, how do you, how did you experience that going from having the complete autonomy over the inner gym, 
versus the compromise you may have had to make or compromises you may have had to make in sharing a voice with the publisher and how'd that work out and how do you feel about it now that the project is done? Well, I think it's the opposite of what people would think or what I initially thought um, when I first started writing my self-published book, The Inner Gym. Um, it took me three and a half years to write The Inner Gym. And it, it took, took me far six too months long to write The Inner Gym, yes. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say that. I, <laughs> I did. And, <laughs> and it took me six months to write Bliss More. Now, when I was writing Bliss More, I really wasn't doing much of anything else. I was just writing. And the part of that was because I got an advance from, excuse me, I got an advance from the publisher. So I, I was able to not work as much and I could just spend a lot of time writing. And I also had, you know, an editor, an independent editor that I was working with. And um, I had an agent who was giving me who was kind of shepherding us through the entire process. I didn't have that in the beginning with the first book. Um, and so while I had autonomy in the first book, I didn't have the deadlines that I think are actually necessary for getting the process complete. And while I had the deadlines in the second book, I wish I had more um, I wish I had more time to kind of flesh out the concepts and, and, and cause you know, the thing with writing is like art, you know, you can't, you can't really paint. If someone said, I want you to paint a masterpiece. You have till Friday to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not really how, how painting works. You, you have, you have inspiration, you have technique, obviously, but you can't force the concept. You can't force the inspiration. And uh, and I felt like with Bliss More, it was a bit forced for my end. And I felt like it could have been a better product if I had more time to write. But also knowing knowing me and knowing if I was left up to my own devices, I still would have probably waited and yeah, procrastinated a bit yeah. and, mm -hmm. and called it. Uh, I was just you know being inspired and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, so I think it, I think it works out, you know, and, and having the benefit of having a couple of editors look at the stuff and, and, um, and also the fact that they didn't know anything about anything. They didn't know anything about meditation. Right. So it was kind of, it was kind of nice. At first I thought, well, I want to get someone to work with me who knows about meditation. But then I, then I saw the value in, in working with someone who didn't know anything about it because I figured if I could. If I could write in a way that they get it, then the average person who's out there reading the book mm -hmm. is going to be able to get it a lot easier. So I think that ended up working out. And uh, the feedback has been amazing from, from Bliss Moore. You, you know, the feedback in her gym was great too. Before you go into feedback, I'm going I'm to pick your brain and make mm -hmm. you give your own counter argument. Okay. You went to an art class. This, this is the benefit I have of, of the, the duration of our friendship. I've known you for longer than I haven't known you. You've known me longer than you have in terms of your lifespan. Mm -hmm. You went to an art class. In the art class, they told you to. The one at NYU? The one at NYU. Tell the story. Tell the story and then listen to the story yourself. So I went to the art class. Um, it was a live, it was a new drawing, live new drawing class. And uh, the first day the teacher said, okay, um, the, the figure model is going to pose and you guys, you have, you have one minute to draw 
whatever you're going to draw. Mm-hmm. So, so of course, everyone's thinking, you know, that's not enough time. So you're literally just scribbling out chicken scratch drawings. Right. And we did that a couple times. They changed positions. You had another minute, changed positions. Now you have five minutes. All of a sudden, you're looking like Michelangelo mm-hmm. with your five minutes. <laughs> you got four extra minutes. And then after that, he said, okay, now you got 30 minutes. And then it was like, we just, he just like, he said, you have all the time in the world right. <laughs> to draw. So it was, it was kind of cool because the pressure of having to do it so quickly, it changed your relationship with the time and it forced you to have to, um, it, it, it allowed you to, to be able to maximize the, the, what the, the time that you had, because if he had started with 30 minutes, we would have thought, oh, it's not enough time. Mm-hmm. 30 minutes is not nearly enough time to get this thing done. So it was just it was just kind of distorting the point of reference. Right. And there's Bliss Moore. And that's why they pay me to coach. Boom. <laughs> you just did the, the complete opposite argument of what you just made. But I, I, I think that. Uh... Well, here's the difference, though, just to my own credit. Like I knew that those drawings, if I didn't want them to never see the light of day then they weren't going to. But in my mind, I'm thinking this thing is going to live forever. You know, people may be referencing this thing 800 years from now, 1,000 years from now, 3,000 years from now. We don't know where this thing is going to go. So I want to make sure that it communicates what I want it to communicate because once this thing goes out, I'm never going to be able to influence it again. And it has my name on it. So which means it has my whole family heritage's you know, reputation. You have the tendency to Axl Rose stuff. You have a tendency to put, this is the album. And then when it's album number two time, you know, I need it to be perfect. And you're a perfect instead of progress guy, which we have to continue working on. And, and that's the deal. I get it. You're right. But uh, you have, I mean, your voice is the most influential voice in your head. And I think that you have what you said about bliss more in that process, but you also have what you just experienced in the art class. And that was 15, 20 years ago also, but it's there. And if you think about the lesson that you, that you got in that, I think it may help you uh, to navigate the process for book three, which we want to do in terms of feedback. I know you got a lot of great feedback. I, I know you did the 21 day challenge. You're doing it again. I've seen the reposts. I've seen, uh, a lot of uh, people who I consider your super fans rising to support you. I've seen people who never heard of you before support you. And I just want to know what surprised you. Is there, pick something in the in the total spectrum of feedback you got and tell me something that you, that genuinely surprised you so far. Um, <laughs> What surprised me was that uh, – uh, what surprised me about the process? No, not about the about process. The about some about feedback. The, about feedback. Yeah. Well, look, we did the 21-day challenge and you know, the inner gym was a 30-day challenge and that was great. People loved it. And so I kind of already had a template in mind for – the Bliss More Challenge. And one of the things that I like to incorporate in this challenge is social media in some aspect. You know, I think accountability is important. Um, But I also like to have fun. You know, I think a lot of people make meditation very serious. And I want it it to not only demystify the practice, but I want it to show that there's a lightness to it 
And I think that when people are able to embody the lightness of meditation, it allows them to relax a little bit more and, and they get better results because they're more relaxed in the process. So I used a lot of memes. I use a lot of GIFs um, mm-hmm. in the, on, the, on the challenge pages just to kind of show the, the lightness of what, what we were learning and doing. And, um, and then we used Instagram for accountability. So we'd have people go and post on Instagram and tag bliss more challenge, um, every day to, to, to be accountable. And I think that was, that ended up, I wasn't sure how that was going to go. Cause I think the, the go-to is let's do a Facebook group. People go to the Facebook group, blah, blah, blah. But I think more people are spending time on Instagram these days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it ended up being a good call. Uh, because I thought people, I felt that people were really excited about sharing their journey on Instagram with their friends who could then cheer them on and, and that kind of thing. And, and also you could easily scroll through everyone else's pictures and see, whereas with a Facebook page, you scroll through the group wall and, you know, it's half of it is like people saying the same stuff or, you know, people debating about stuff that doesn't really matter. And so it's just, you get right to the images that people really love and, on each day of the challenge, I could also post the feed from Instagram so people could see in real time while they were reading the page what the people who were living a- across the world uh, had already posted, who got the message, who got the email you know, before they did. So that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that surprised me is that after the 21 days were over, there was this kind of organic movement to continue on. And then this new hashtag kind of rose from that, which was bliss more for 90 more days mm-hmm. or bliss more for 90 days or something like that. And, um, which you didn't set up. I didn't set it up. No, right. but there's like a group of people who are doing it for now because in the book I talk about in order to form the habit properly, uh, you have to do it for 90 days, but there's no way I was going to do a 90 day challenge. Cause I mean, you get the, the drop off rate would be, yeah. <laughs> it would be, you know, enormous. Um, and that's, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, this whole thing with paying for stuff and meditation should be free here. You know, we did a bliss more challenge, uh, 21 days free challenge, you know, that, yeah, the book was whatever, $15 or whatever it was on Amazon, $12 on Kindle. Uh, if, if, if it's true that having the free offering, you know, was the answer, then everybody who, who bought into that. And who started the challenge would have finished the challenge. But you see, you know, you get the normal drop-off rate. 30% of the people who started stopped doing it. Right. You know? Now, we don't know why they stopped doing it, but I guarantee you if they paid me $1,000 to do this challenge, they'd all be doing it still. Mm-hmm. They'd be getting their money's worth out of it. And if they did it and they completed it, they would be in a better situation and they would get the benefits of the meditation. But because it was free – it's so easy not to commit to it. Right. You know, and, and I think people, I think we understand that when it comes to buying handbags and cars and, you know, organic food versus conventionally grown food. But for some reason, we, we get this selective amnesia when it comes to things like meditation. And I think it's because we see it, we still see it, especially in the African American community. We talked about this, you and I. We see it as a luxury item. It's not a necessity. Meditation is not a necessity yet in our community. Um, and so hopefully we get to that point where we start to, to, 
to value it as as much as the more privileged uh, communities uh, value these kinds of wellness practices. Because you know, a lot of people in in the black communities they won't spend the extra fifty cents for organic food because or go to the farmers market because they it's just easier and quicker to go to the you yeah, know, you're bodega or sure. run, right. Yeah. yeah, you're running down there or or. Yeah, my mother used to say all the time, you know, I, I, when I was a vegan, I'd say, why are you using Crisco, you know, which is basically lard to make the whatever you the pie or whatever you're making. And why don't you use there's a coconut oil or whatever you can use. And that's healthier. She didn't want to hear that. She wasn't interested in, in what was healthier. Her mother always cooked with Crisco. And right. That's what she cooked with. Right. So. And and the fact that the coconut oil would have been three times as more expensive than the Crisco, I mean, there's no way I'm doing it. Right. If that's the case. Even if I was open to it, there's no way I'm doing it. Yeah. So I think I think that uh, you know, again, it's a self-selecting process, the whole investment. I even do a chapter on it in the book called The Exchange Principle, just kind of sh- saying how important it is to make some sort of exchange. And I meet people all the time, they don't have you know, they, they want to learn with me. They don't have money. I say, well, look, go and volunteer somewhere. Go volunteer at, a, at an organization for, 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 for 30 hours. Come back. Show me the certificate that you volunteered, and then I'll train you to meditate. I've done that before. I don't do that as much. It's a case-by-case basis. So right. if you're listening to this, don't come to me <laughs> saying, oh, you know, I, I, I was a lifeguard when I was 15 years yeah. old. Does that count? Right. It's like, no. From the moment we meet, then you have to go right. and do something. Because again, your time is, is there's a value to that, and it's so I, I get people saying, no, "No, I don't want to do that because that's too much, right?" So what they're saying is that their, their, their time is worth more than yours. Yeah, yeah, their time <laughs> is worth more than mine. Exactly, and that's all I need to hear for me to make my decision. You're not ready to learn with me, right? So when you're ready to learn, making that exchange is going to be uh, an obvious thing that needs to happen in order for you to be invested in so that you're not shortchanging yourself. Cause it's not about shortchanging me. Like I, I'm not making my, my operation is not going to be made, made or, or broken, broken on by one guy. Yeah. Uh, one guy, one or two or three, whatever. It's like, if you're, if you're trying to get over on people and make a ton of money, you're not going to become a meditation teacher. There's much easier ways to get wealthy than teaching people how to meditate. You know, if you're just driven by the, wanting to accumulate as much money as possible, I'm trying to help people, and I, I I know the mechanics, and you know them as well. We've talked about it many times, and we both have kind of laughed at each other's um, experiences with clients, where people aren't invested, and they want you to basically pay them, right, to transform them, and it just doesn't work that way, you know. And this, and 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 we talk about you know having to we 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 both have gone above and beyond to help people, and we have to like pull each other down off the ledge and say, look, man, you just got to let them <laughs> right. You just got to figure it out because you don't have time to be jumping through hoops. You're taking away from everybody else who is, who is vested in their transformation and, uh, and let that person just have their own experience, do the research and what it's like to, to keep suffering or keep, you know, gaining weight or whatever the case may be. And eventually everybody always comes back around. And when I have people who fly to see me from across the country or even from across the world, it just reminds me of the value of what I'm doing. And it just makes it a lot easier to allow other people to have their experience. And there's other plenty of people to, to go and 
and you know they'll give you a meditation experience for for hardly anything. You can go to the forest for ten days, and that's that's free, and you can do all that. So there is there are free options. So I don't feel bad charging people to teach them to meditate because there are plenty of options. I happen to be what I would consider a premium option, and for people who want that level of experience, and they come and find me. If they don't, then that's fine. Yeah. I'm a professional, and I'm very clear about that. There it is. Hey man, Bliss Moore is the book. I'm so happy that's done and it's out. I was happy to be able to make it to the uh, to the launch in LA. How to succeed in meditation without really trying. I do have one last question on the book. You reference Alfonso, 35 year old, 30 something year old guy in IT. Is that our Alfonso? That's our Alfonso. That you you connected me with him and I <laughs> taught him meditation in DC many years ago and he's been doing it like clockwork and now he's a big entrepreneur. He's got a tea company, Brooklyn Tea, which um, you know it's not unusual. And that's what I love about what I do because I'm in touch with these guys after I teach them. I can see the trajectory and it, right. I can see how, you know, it's, it's, I hear it all the time. I mean, yeah, there are the health benefits to meditation, but then you also hear people doing amazing things. Like the guy who, you know, the High Line in New York? Yeah. The park, the elevated park yeah, on the yeah. old train tracks. Mm -hmm. The guy who created that, he's a meditator. Right. You know, he started meditating. He he did he didn't come up with the idea from meditation, but he came up with the idea and then he started meditating. And just like my friend who was able to get off the the sodas, he he kept following through on this idea of creating this elevated park. And then eventually, ten years later, it became the High Line. And he attributes meditation to giving him the energy and the stamina and the focus to be able to follow through on that. Right. And um, you know, the, there's a guy named Jesse Israel in New York who created the big quiet, which is these, which are these mass meditation experiences. I taught him how to meditate. And after that, he quit his job in the music industry and he started doing these other experiences. They started growing. And now he's one of the biggest, most influential people in the meditation scene in the country. And, uh, and I see it all the time. You know, I tell people, if you don't want to be happy, don't start meditating every day. Cause that's, what's going <laughs> to happen. And then, and then when you, once you get happy, once you have, once you fill the hole inside, I mean, it's no limit to what you can do because you're not doing things solely to make money anymore. You're doing things to help people. And when you're doing things with that intention in mind, the universe just supports you and you end up, you end up being able to just achieve the most amazing things that you probably never even imagined that you could achieve back when you were living life under the influence of stress where you know you were just kind of trying to get to the next moment even though you probably were making a lot of money you were just trying to get to sleep that night or you're just trying to get to the next meeting and just trying to do enough to get by because that's what stress does is it it hampers our potential and it makes us get into that just get by mode where it's we never feel like we have enough of anything enough sex enough enough food enough time enough attention enough exercise right. enough attention anything yeah so we have to keep filling the hole the endless hole inside and we never get a chance to really give back in the way that we all want to. So if you don't want to be fulfilled and don't want to be happy, then then uh, don't start meditating because that's exactly what's going to happen. Thank you, man. We got it. Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah, it was fantastic. This conversation was a long time coming. The Super Fantastic Show.